in our understanding of Jesus, he was fully God and fully human. Uh, and a lot of times we only understand the fully God part and we leave out the fully human part. Uh, and it's really important for us to understand Jesus as fully human because unless we understand him as going through the temptations that we went through, the life stages that we go through, the, the kind of hardships that we go through as people, it's really hard to truly understand him fully as our Savior and understand what he's done for us. And so that is our hope in the next month that we can truly understand Jesus as fully human and what that means for us in, in salvation. Uh, and so the first thing I just want to kind of look at is we're going to be looking at Luke 2 today. Before I jump into the passage, though, where I'll give you a quick, brief history of Jesus as baby. Uh, a lot of us know kind of the, the silent night Jesus, the Christmas baby Jesus, uh, with the three wise men that come to visit him, the gifts that he gets. A uh, little tip for parents, by the way, my brother did this. He said to his kids, Jesus only got three presents on Christmas, so you only get three presents. And I was like, man, that is genius. I am going to be using that. Um, he just saved me a lot of money in the future. But Jesus as uh, a baby is interesting. He was born into a very religious family. Uh, his birth brought a little bit of scandal to his parents because Mary was a young teen. A lot of scholars believe she was in the 14 to 15 year old range when she was pregnant with Jesus, uh, which was not very different back then. Uh, but what was interesting about it is Mary was not married yet, and so when she came and told uh, her betrothed, her engaged fiance, you know, what would you do if you came to your fiance, or your fiance comes up to you, uh, if you're a man, and, um, and your fiance says, hey, I'm pregnant. And you're like, well, that's funny. We haven't had sex yet. So uh, wonder how that happened. Uh, and so Joseph was going to kind of leave her quietly. Uh, as You know, he's a nice guy, it seems like. Uh, I'm sure he was if he was going to be the kind of father male figure in Jesus' life growing up. Uh, but an angel had to come and tell Joseph, like, don't worry, your wife's not crazy. God really did uh, put this baby inside of her. Um, and so he's like, okay, you know, uh, I'll live with that. But Jesus, in his birth, and the family came into his very religious family. Uh, they really followed the law. And Luke 2, something that really happens over and over again is Luke is constantly pointing out the different religious traditions that his family followed. And some of them were this. Uh, he was circumcised on the eighth day. So uh, Jesus in uh, Jewish custom was circumcised in the proper time. Uh, he was brought to the temple to be dedicated. So his family made sure that they uh, dedicated him. In this passage we're about to read, we see that they go to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Uh, and in the very first verse, it says that um, they followed in the Jewish traditions. And so Luke is, who's the author of this book that we're going to be reading from in Luke 2 today, he is constantly making sure that in the upbringing, the understanding of Jesus, that we get this picture uh, that he was brought in this uh, very pious household, that they, they weren't cultural Jews, they weren't Hellenists uh, who were more Greek Jews, but these were traditional um, Jewish upbringings that Jesus had. But more importantly, he came as a baby, which means he cried, he pooped, he was vulnerable, he needed care. Like if, if his mother did not feed him, then he would have perished. And it's really interesting to think of Jesus in these ways, 
because we so often focus uh, Jesus in his and who he is as this we 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 kind of talk about the same thing his death his burial his resurrection but a lot of times what we miss about this thing that we call the gospel is his incarnation that he was here he was among us he was born just as we were into this world as a crying vulnerable baby and grew up just like us he experienced toddler years he experienced teenage years his early 20s, like these, these were life stages that Jesus went through, that he walked through, that he understands what it's like to be in. And so, but the passage we're going to focus on today is, is starts in verse 39, because this gives us uh, this understanding of Jesus as a burgeoning teenager, as a 12-year-old. And so you can read along with me on the screen. We're going to start in verse 39, and we're going to read to uh, verse 52, and we're going to stay in this passage for the rest of the time. And it's just a little story in this preteen year of Jesus. It says, And when they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I would be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So this, this passage, again, starts off with uh, Luke reaffirming the household that Jesus grew up with, with its religious nature, uh, that his family followed the traditions. They brought him up in the understanding of the culture. They brought him up in the understanding of God and how he should be, be brought up and and the ways that had been laid out in the Old Testament for parents to do. And, you know, it, it brings me to this just interesting thing that we have kind of walked away from. And it's, it's this simple fact that raising kids in church is important. You know, in Proverbs 22.6, it says this, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. You know, a lot of times we want our kids to kind of grow up uh, and, and we want them to grow up with a sense of morality. We want them to grow up with a sense of right and wrong. We want them uh, to understand, you know, the, the, the good, the bad, what is okay to do, what is not okay to do. Uh, but in that, we neglect to model that in our own house. You know, we, we can't model in our home that the church in Christ is not important and then our, our expect our kids to find that it is important. Uh, and 
in our society nowadays, it's, we, we have constantly kind of put less and less pressure on ourselves. Well, you know what? Church isn't that important. You know, the, and when I say church, I don't mean the, the building church. I mean the community church. Uh, the, the church as in the people, raising them with the people. Um, part of what we do here is part of what the church does. We gather to worship and praise in community and listen to the word in community and let God speak to us that way. But what's interesting is the emphasis and the importance that Luke plays on this that I think is important for us to understand especially in our culture today, that puts so much emphasis on the individual, puts so much emphasis on, you know, the, from the nuclear family to the individual person, um, where uh, I, one of the guys sent me a great quote this week that church is so much, I forget the guy who said it, uh, church has so much put family above church, above our responsibilities in Christ, that we look at our lives, we look at our kids, and we think, okay, I want to make sure that I, I take care of my family. I want to make sure I take care of my kids. That means that I am not going to hang out or be in community or be in church if it messes up their nap schedule. Or I want to make sure that they have all the athletics that they need. So, you know, we're not going to go to church for six months or for a year. We're going to disconnect ourselves from community because we want them to be in soccer. I have nothing against soccer. I have nothing against, you know, go take a vacation. As you can see, uh, half the leaders today are on vacation. I love that. Go on vacation. Have family time. It's important. But when we start to put family above what, and when I say church, sometimes people think like this church. And it's like, no, family goes above ministry. But being a part of the church is important. And when we start to take our family away because we say, oh, we have all these different priorities. And then we wonder when our kids grow up, when maybe that was how it was like in our church and our families. And we grow up and they stop following God. They stop listening to him. They don't want to be in church anymore. Why? Because we've modeled a life where tradition, we've modeled a life where church, we've modeled a life where Christ is not important. And this is not to say we need to force feed kids Christianity, because that also has turned more people away from the church than anything else. Uh, there's people that I, I see today, and I'm just like, man, you made it. You know, if you grew up in the church, uh, you know, you deserve a pat on the back. Because uh, when I grew up in the church, it, 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 in our tradition, and our culture, uh, a lot of kids just walked away from it because we were force-fed Christianity. And that's the other extreme. It's like, you don't want this? I don't care. I'm going to beat you until you like it. And it's like, when have a kid ever been beaten? And then they all of a sudden start liking something. It doesn't work. But what I am talking about is modeling the fruit of the Spirit daily. What does patience look like? What is joy? What is gentleness? What does kindness look like? To model this for your kids, where, for instance, last night, I was putting my son to sleep, and uh, he has a hard time going to sleep, to put it mildly. You know, if you've ever had a, a troubled child, if you're a parent, then, uh, you, you know, sometimes you get a kid, and your kid goes to sleep, no problem, they sleep through the night. It's Any parent that is like that, I just ask them, please don't talk to me right now. I don't want to hear your stories, just... Just shut up and turn around. 
because I'm going to sin. Maybe not outwardly, but inwardly, there's lots of sin going on right now. So my older son, he's always had a trouble with sleeping at night. Uh, And last night I was putting him to bed, and it's usually uh, to get him to go to sleep on his own in his bed, I have to sit next to him for about 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, And me sitting down in darkness, trying not to fall asleep, knowing I have stuff to do for 45 minutes to an hour, I don't know if you've ever tried to do that. You know, it doesn't sound that bad, but go home at like 9.30, do that tonight, see what it's like. You start to go crazy, and then, you know, he's moving around, he's talking, and then Levi is asleep, you know, next to him, and I'm like, shut up, you can't wake up Levi. Like, if you wake up him, I'm going to be even more mad. And he's like, oh, you know, let's, let's go in your bed, and I'm like, no, stay in your bed, and he's like, just sitting up, I think I want water right now, and I'm like, no, you had water, I don't want you to have water. And so last night, I decided that, uh, during these times, I'm just going to let him get up because it's better for him to get up and do some stuff than for him to experience and go to sleep with an angry dad every night and model this impatient, uh, frustrated, uh, angry father, and that's going to be his nighttime story. So last night, I just kind of, all right, he was doing that again, and I took him out of the room, and I said, it's all right, you can go out. Five minutes later, he said, Daddy, can you pick me up? And I said, sure. I picked him up. He fell asleep in two seconds. Put him back in his bed. But as parents, we need to model um, this kind of fruit of the Spirit. Uh, and if you're wondering, hey, I'm not a parent, don't worry. We'll talk about you in a little while uh, because we're not having a message uh, for only parents today. But it's also that we teach the value of tradition in the homes. Prayer, gathering, scripture reading, fasting. These things were important in the life of Jesus. And I think that as a church, it even feels weird that somebody is preaching on this stuff right now. Uh, maybe for some of you, but I think that that is part of the individualistic kind of Americanized Western culture that we live in, that these things aren't prioritized anymore. They're not important, but I want to show that they are. So Jesus was an interesting preteen, right? Uh, His family was going on the feast, and what that was, the, the the Passover feast, is every year the uh, Israel nation would celebrate because during the when when Moses went and freed the Israelites from Egypt, uh, there was ten plagues, and the last plague was where they get the feast of Passover from, uh, because the last plague was the firstborn of every person in Egypt that didn't have the blood of the lamb covering their doorpost would pass away, uh, and so when the plague came to the home and it saw the blood of the lamb just foreshadowing Jesus right there. I absolutely love it. On the home, it passed over their house and that's where we get the feast of Passover. And so the family went up, they go to celebrate uh, and then the family goes home and then it takes them a day to realize, hey, Jesus, our son is not with us. Now you may be thinking those are some pretty negligible parents. Like, that, that is not good. What are they doing? And that's actually not the case because a lot of times kids were raised in community back then. So you can go hang out with friends, aunts, and uncles. We, they would go up to the feast sometimes with their entire town in, in enclaves, and the kids would hang out with each other, and then they would go home that way. So they would know, the kids would know that, hey, like, the train is leaving the station. I got to jump on. Like, it's time to go home. But they go back. They go to Jerusalem, and they start looking for him. And we read what happens in 46, 47, 49, and 50. 
which is after three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying he spoke to them. The thing I love about this passage is Jesus started learning at a young age. You know, his ministry started at 30, but his preparation started way before he was 30 years old. In our culture, we have this kind of superhero mentality that one day I'm going to wake up bitten by a spider and I'm going to be a superhero. I'm going to wake up, I'm going to look in the mirror and I'm going to have muscles, I'm going to be, you know, thin again, I'm going to be in shape and it's all going to be perfect and every you know everything in our culture is is how do you get to that um, beach body I'm sorry for those of you that are beach body people but how do you get to that beach body the quickest way possible how do you get there like how do you get that those ripped abs or you know the bikini body as as fat everything you know I'll give you pills that just kind of suck the life out of you and and you know, you don't even have to do anything. You can sit home and watch TV, just take these pills. And our society is so bent on this overnight success that a lot of times we look at Jesus when he comes on the scene at 30 and we think, whew, he just hit it. He, he made it. You know, I watched Power Rangers this weekend. Uh, I had to. And nostalgia just was sick, uh, sitting in. And here are these five ordinary kids that go and they find these medallions, and then what happens? They can jump 100 feet in the air. They can save the world and, and, and not be harmed. They get these suits that grow from the inside of them out. It just happens, and so much of our life is expectation like that. We just think that everything's going to be okay tomorrow. I'll wake up one day and I will be okay. I'll wake up one day and all the preparation I need will be there. I'll wake up one day and everything that needs to happen will happen. But we neglect to realize that a lot of times it's a process. We, we stop looking at the long game and we look only to the short term in our lives. They say that a lot of times the best investors are the ones that don't look at the short term, but they look at the long game, which means they know how to lose money and be okay with it. You know, a lot of times we are so infatuated with the now, the now, the now, that we hurt ourselves constantly. And you know, I, I think the best representation of that is me driving in traffic, changing lanes every five seconds. And every time I change a lane, that lane starts to go faster and I start going more further behind, 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 behind. But Jesus, yes, he started his ministry at 30, but we see from this young age that he started learning at a younger age. He started preparation. It wasn't just he woke up one day and it was like, oh, I'm Jesus. I'm just going to go save people. And, you know, there was a long process of what his life looked like up until that moment. And what's interesting about this is how the preteens and even teens in our society are elaborated on. And when we look at that, we see this. How are teens and preteens in society dealt with today? Those are your glory years to explore. No consequences for what you do. You're a teenager, you're good. Just do whatever you want. 
This is a, a time to explore, to figure out what you like, to, to figure out, you know, what drugs are good sexually, what satisfies you. This is a time to have as many girlfriends, boyfriends as you can. Just kind of play the field, go for it. And, and what we have said is, as a society, what we've done is we've thrown away this decade of life for all of us. And it's like, as long as you can kind of get by in school, society has said, be infatuated with all the different things that we can offer. Game as much as you can. Date as much as you can. Do find out absolutely what you enjoy and then overdose on those pleasures. We've given up a lot of times on these years. And I think it's one of the biggest disservices that we've done as a society to young people. You know, we look at Jesus and his sitting at the temple and he was learning, he was asking questions and we kind of get this glimpse into what was he like as a kid. Um, and I love Jesus because he is left, his life was left as a model for us that he was the perfect savior and the perfect person. But it was a picture of how the Holy Spirit can work in us. How can we be this, this loving man, this, this patient person, this one who is kind and yet firm, who is gentle yet stood his ground. This in incredible picture, this model left for us. And even... For his younger years, I think, are a model for us. That these are years that we shouldn't just throw away. And, you know, I can look back into my teen years and I see two things that happened there. The one thing is, I learned all the skills I needed to learn to start my business when I was a teen. I learned how to program. I learned how to use Photoshop. I learned how to build computers. I learned how to make websites. I learned how to do everything um, I needed to know to start my business when I was a teen. You know, I remember I went to uh, Brooklyn Tech for high school, and people were like, oh, wow, you went to Brooklyn Tech? And it's like, I was just as surprised as you are uh, to hear that I went to Brooklyn Tech. Usually when you take those specialized tests, you know, you, 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 you have a general sense if you can make it or not. So the general consensus in my house was I wasn't going to make it. Uh, my brother and my sister didn't make it, and they were way better academically than I was. 90 students. I was, I was a, a great 75 average kind of student, really good at it. I, I knew my lane. Um, and so when I took the test, and I remember one day they called all the smart kids. There was, you know, in every class you have the smart kids. So they called the five smart kids, and then they called me. Everybody knew what they were calling them about until they called my name. Then they're like, huh, I wonder what this is about. Are they in trouble? You know, did, did something happen with them? Like, I wonder what happened. Uh, and I, they told me, hey, you made it into tech. And I remember I was like, this is amazing. I'm going to call my mom. I called my mom, and I told her. I was like, mom, I made it into tech. She said, what? You, you, you made it into tech? Like <laughs> Whoa, I didn't expect that one. It's like, thanks, Mom, appreciate it. <laughs> but I remember, like, these years were years in my life that helped propel and shape who I was today. But also, these were the years that I opened the door to sin in my life that was the sin that has been the greatest temptation that I have faced to date. This has been... 
the, the sins that I've opened the door to in my teen years have been the, the sins that were the hardest to close. The temptation that still comes knocking on the door, the things that I allowed in. And I found that to be generally what has happened a lot with people is we were told, go be and do what you want to do. When you're an adult, you figure it out. But we failed to realize so much of what we do when we're a teen shapes who we are as an adult. We're never told the consequences of our choices in our teen years. We're just told we're allowed to do what we want. We'll be fine. When we get older, we figure it out. But when we've got older, we realize that we started doing everything that we want to do when we were a teen, and it's really hard to stop doing that because we got really bad advice. And our decision to throw away our teenage years has led a lot of times to the crisis of adulthood that we face today, that our young adults ministries go to 55 years old instead of 21 years old. Because what we have is we have a society that has allowed teenagers to do whatever they want, to be whoever they want, and then when they become adults, they've realized that they've already started making all those adult decisions but never, made, never understood what they were doing. And so all those doors we opened, all those explorations that we decided to go through begin to haunt us well into our adulthood. And it's, it then becomes, Father, like, I need forgiveness, I need redemption, I need freedom from what has happened when I was younger. And the amazing thing about God is what he can do when people come to him. But again, we always sometimes think, Hey, it's like Spider-Man. One day I'm going to wake up and everything's going to be gone. We forget that there's consequence. Jesus took away the ultimate consequence of our sin, but there are very real earthly consequences for our sin that we get to process and heal through with the Holy Spirit, that he works and shapes and does things in our heart and changes things and, and, and brings us back in remembrance to things that, hey, you remember when this happened when you were 14? Well, this has been something that has carried with you till now. So I want to bring healing to that area. And what's interesting about Jesus is his response to his parents, but also capacity, his capability as a young person. It says in verse 51, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And a lot of times we look at this passage, and it's really hard to say this is Jesus as a 12-year-old, because a lot, when every time I read this passage, I keep on wanting to think this is Jesus as a 25-year-old. That he grew in wisdom, he grew in stature, and he grew in favor with God. But no, this is him as a 12-year-old. And it got me thinking, how can we as a church begin to view teens in a more biblical and godly way? And I think teens are generally viewed in these one of three ways in the church. They're either glorified, they're either invisible, or they're family. And when you're in a church where they glorify teens, a lot of it goes like this. Everything caters to the younger generation. 
right? Everything. You have the music caters to the younger generation, uh, the, the preaching caters to the younger generation. This is when you have like a 60-year-old pastor in skinny jeans and, uh, and it's just like, this is a little weird, you know? Like, I don't know what's happening here. Or they're, you know, the, the hair has more volume than hair you've seen in like three decades, you know? It's like, that was out of style, buddy. Um, but there is, uh, in some churches, the younger generation is glorified. Everything is about the younger generation. What happens is when you make everything about one generation, you begin to alienate the others. And then more mature people begin to look at this and say, well, where's my place? How do I fit in this? Well, th this isn't kind of what, something that I can be in community with and, and participation with and and, and be a part of my life because everything is so focused on them, you get kind of forgotten about. And I've seen that happen in churches where it's just like, hey, we're having a midlife crisis as a church. We need to go young now. And so they start to throw everything out and start to redo and, and change. And then what happens? Half the church will leave. And then what you have in the church is you have an unhealthy balance of age groups. Because who are these young people going to learn from? Who are they going to be able to go through life with? Who's going to tell them that what they're doing as a 15-year-old is dumb and that they shouldn't do that because when they get older, they're going to regret it? That's what happens when we have these youth, young, adult-focused churches. That's why I've said from the beginning, I do not want to be a millennial church. I think that it is not only unhealthy for us as a church just to focus on millennials, but it doesn't make sense in the context of scripture because God was always a generational God who spoke through many generations. That he valued parents, he valued kids, he, he, he values the entire spectrum of age, and I think to be a reflection of that biblically, we should be a reflection of that as a church biblically. And so we can't elevate the experience of one age group to almost an idolatric experience and then leave out another that glorifies a, a people group instead of glorifying the Father. Bless you. And then the, the second thing is sometimes they could be invisible. This is the opposite end of the spectrum. We have church. Who cares about the teens? Like we are enjoying what we're doing here. You know, the, they're, they're young, they'll figure it out. This is kind of what we were talking about. You know, they're in the stages of life as they get older. Don't worry about it. You know, maybe they'll come back, you know, in their 20s. And a lot of times this has led to the crisis the church is having in America where we, don't, we could care less about how the teens are experiencing God, how they're growing in God, how they're uh, able to connect into the community of God, and they become invisible. And so it's no wonder that when they grow up, they're leaving the church in droves. Because as long as we do things that we like, who cares about the other person, right? And so that's why there's balance, as much as we can't alienate one generation, we don't want to alienate the other generation. And there's compromises made in that. How can we worship together? What is helpful for all? What is, what is your needs? And how can we allow God to speak to those needs as a community, which is the third way where we can see them as family. And this is what the body of Christ is. It's family. This is how it is described time and time again in the New Testament. Family means that they're not elevated above the rest. They're not invisible to the point where we don't care about them. 
but they are a part of who we are. They are part of what we invest in. They are a part of who we care about. That just as much as we greet new people that may look like us in age or ethnicity, we go and greet others that maybe don't look like us. And you know what? Sometimes we don't realize that they can mean an age difference too. Where we can go and make people feel welcome, make them feel welcome. Where teenagers are important. And if you are a teen, I want you to feel important in this church. I want you to feel cared about in this church. That you have big brothers and big sisters that will care about you. And that's where we want to rest on today. Is that whether you have kids or you don't have kids, what you can be is a part of the family of God. That you can find people that are younger than you and say, hey, I want to help you go through these years that maybe I didn't get help for. Or you can say, I made these really bad decisions when I was your age. And so you can learn from the, the mistakes that I made and look at the consequences I'm dealing with now. Here's, here's some advice. Here's some, ask me questions about where I am. I can kind of help guide you through that. We want to be a family. That means that whether somebody is your kid or not, you can include them in your life as a big brother, as a big sister to them. And say, hey, guess what? You want to hang out with me? I'm going to go to the movies. Do you want to come along? I'm going to go out to eat. Do you want to come with me? You don't have to be a parent. You can be single. You can be married. You can have kids. It doesn't matter. That has nothing to do with whether you can include people in your family or not. This is something that I think as a church that we are called to do. That no matter where we are on the spectrum, that we are able to look at people and say, hey, I want to include you in my life. I want to I help you along. And, you know, sometimes it, it, it doesn't mean saying that. And, you know, I don't mean, like, go, go find a teen and tell them, like, all the things that you did wrong. You know, if you're a teen, I'm sorry if somebody does that to you. That's not what I'm saying. But be interested. Care. You know, a, a lot of times, uh, if you want to talk about millennials and the next generation, what they find in study after study, what they lack most is mentorship. Is people that care about them, that have been through it, that are, are willing to enter into their world, that are willing to care beyond the, the hello and the goodbye, but, you know, will take a text message from me uh, at an inconvenient time, have me over for dinner when maybe you don't want to have somebody over because you had a hard day at work, or include me, you know, when you go out, when maybe you weren't planning on taking somebody, but, you know, you're going to include me because, you know, a lot of Christianity is a lot of sacrifice, over and over and over again. And so the challenge that I felt from this scripture for our church is to be looking at what we do as a family more and more and more. And what that means is begin to, maybe it's not even somebody that goes to this church, but it's somebody that you can help. I can tell you, as when I was a teen, there were people that took me under their wing that have made the absolute difference. And I think that is why I stayed in the church, you know, a lot of times is because when I was trying to figure it out and I wasn't sure, you know, it sounds funny right now thinking that a 16-year-old was struggling with atheism because we look at that and it's like, you know, what do you know? And that's part of seeing teens as invisible. But when I was 16, I was struggling with whether I was going to be an atheist or not. I had decided to be an atheist, but before I went along that path for the rest of my life, 
I realized, hey, you know what, maybe I should, I thank God for this. I thought maybe I should go figure this out a little bit more before I make a decision on my own. And somebody who is a good friend of the family let me live with him for a year, knowing that this was the year I was just going to be learning and trying to figure out how God can work in my life and whether he was real. And that changed my entire life as an 18-year-old, just having somebody take me into their home, getting me, I, I moved away from the city and he took me into his home and he prayed with me. He read scripture with me. He took me to the movie. Every Monday he had off, he took me to the movies and we went out to eat every Monday because it was his day off or he would cook for me. And that changed my entire life that an adult somebody that would do that for me it didn't make sense he didn't charge me rent he didn't make me get a job although I did work uh, there's there just things that he just wanted to be a help in my life and I want to pray for us that as a church that we can see that and really grow as a family and see this less about an experience for me but about being a part of a community, being a part of a family. Why don't you pray with me? Father, I thank you, Lord, for the example that you left us in all stages of life. Lord, whether it was childhood, the preteen years, or adulthood, God, you gave us model after model after model. Lord, I pray that this church would not be a one-generational church. Father, but that your Holy Spirit would give us vision and passion to be multi-generational. Lord, that we would be people that look to give. Give of our life experiences, give of our time, give of our resources to ones that are younger than us. Lord, that we would be a church that bucks against the norm of culture, that says this decade of life is a decade to walk away, to do whatever you want, but Lord, that we would see this as a time to grow in favor and in wisdom and in stature in you. Lord, that we would know just as much as you can speak to us now and work in our hearts, you can do the same in a young person. And that we would pray to be your vessels to be used in that kind of way in our church. I'm going to invite you to stand.